Tonight I've announced that I'm going to speak on the subject of men whom God struck dead. And I want to introduce it by this comparison so that you can see the trend of my thinking and the importance of the subject that lies before us. Suppose that in a meeting of the Board of Aldermen, the city commissioners of the city of Birmingham, somebody should say, well, I propose an ordinance for the city of Birmingham that we set up a scaffold and hang anybody that parks by a fire hydrant or that puts their garbage out on the wrong day of the week or that jaywalks. And someone would say, you're crazy, man. You don't use the death penalty. Well, he'd say, I'd like to put people in the electric chair if uh, they don't do this and that in the way of our city ordinances. Well, you'd say the man was crazy. The death penalty is reserved for murder in the first degree, for treason in the face of the enemy, for selling out secrets to a foreign power. These are the things for which the death penalty is reserved. Yet if you read the Bible through carefully, you will discover that the men who committed the greatest crimes were not only not killed by God, but they were used by God and brought back and became the channels of his highest revelation. God didn't strike Abraham dead for lying and teaching his wife to lie. God didn't strike Jacob dead for being a crook and having to run away from home to keep from being murdered. God did not strike Moses dead for killing an Egyptian. God did not strike the strike dead David for committing adultery and murder. God did not strike Peter dead for cursing and swearing that he did not know Jesus Christ. But the men who were struck dead by God were all religious, were all doing a highly religious thing at the moment God killed them. Let's take for the first, the tenth chapter of Leviticus, where we read of the death of Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus chapter 10. And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer and put fire therein and put incense thereon and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. And there went out fire from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Now, if we find out who they were and what they were doing, we may begin to understand some of the things that God wants us to realize about religion. Turn back over to Exodus chapter 24 for just a minute. And in Exodus 24, we discover that God Almighty took Moses and the priests and the elders up into the mountain. In Exodus 24 and verse 9, Then went up Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. So these two boys, who were to be struck dead in a few days, they were in good company. Family tree, they had it. Aaron was their father, Moses was their uncle. They were the number one family tree in Israel. And position, well, there they were. They were about to be ordained as priests. Notice here it says, they saw the God of Israel. And upon the nobles of the children of Israel, God laid not his hand. Also they saw God and did eat and drink. So here was they, what they saw, of course. I hope you won't come back with the offer, the question, Jesus said, no man hath seen God at any time. There's no contradiction here. They saw some manifestation of God. 
God manifested himself in some way, because even the heaven of the heavens could not contain him. And to say that they saw God is about the equivalent of saying that an ant saw this church. He may have, saw, he may have seen a couple of corners of a couple of bricks, but he never saw the church. If he got far enough off to, uh, to see it all at once, why, his eyes wouldn't carry that far. And so no man has ever seen the God of the heavens, the God of creation. And yet God has manifested himself in many different ways and let people see little edges of his power and hear the still small voice. But here now, Nadab and Abihu, who were highly privileged, and these young men who were, had just finished an eight-day time of spiritual preparation and had just been ordained in the morning were killed that evening when they offered strange fire before the Lord. Now, if we're to understand this, let's reconstruct the scene just as very frequently a detective, when you see a picture in a paper of a, where a murder was, X marks the spot where the body was found. Well, let's mark the spot where the body was found and then we'll understand why God struck these two young men dead on their ordination day. God had just told Moses to build the tabernacle, and he said, see to it that you build everything after the pattern that I gave to thee on the mount. So Moses built this tabernacle. It was a prefabricated house made out of a few dozen boards and bars and staves, and when they'd notched these and put them in place, they had a roll of badger skins that had been sewn together and dyed red, and they threw these skins over the top of the building, hung up a big veil between the holy place and the holy place, the holiest of holies and the holy place, hung up a lighter curtain to the front end of the building, and that was it. Out under the open sky there was a laver where the priests washed their feet, and just a little farther on near where the people came, there was the altar where they killed the lamb. Now, on the first day, when they first opened this tabernacle, there were, first of all, in the innermost building, there was the Ark of the Covenant. It was a box, roughly as big as this pulpit and a little wider, flat on top, with two statues of cherubim with their wings outspread. The box was covered with gold. Inside, there were the stones of the Ten Commandments written on them that God had given to Moses, replacing the ones that Moses had broken. And inside there was a jar of manna, and inside there was Aaron's rod that budded. And there was the ark. And it was there that the priest came once a year and put blood on top of the ark. He never could go in that room except once a year on the Day of Atonement. Outside, in the second and larger room of the tabernacle, double the size of the inner room, there was an altar of incense, where each morning and each evening they burned incense. And here was the table of showbread, and there was the seven-pronged candlestick, Christ the bread of life, Christ the light of the world. Now, in the morning, they ordained Aaron, and Aaron killed the first animal of sacrifice, and offered the sin for the sins of himself, and then he killed another animal for sacrifice, and he took the blood in a bowl, and with a bit of the hyssop brush, he put a drop of the blood on the altar, then he put a drop of blood on the laver, then he came to the building itself, and he put a drop of blood on every one of the sticks of the building, on every piece of leather that went over it, 
on the candlestick, on the table of showbread, on the altar of incense, on the curtain, the veil itself. And a drop of blood went on absolutely everything. As it says in Hebrews, almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no remission. Now, on this first altar where they killed the lamb, they had uh, kindling wood. And that kindling wood was laid there, no fire. That kindling wood was laid there with the body of the lamb lying across the top. And the Bible tells us that at the moment that it was that the worship began, God Almighty sent a flash of horizontal lightning from the Holy of Holies out through here, out to that wood and lighted the wood which burned the lamb. Now this is the key to the story. Who was it that lighted the fire that burned the lamb? God the Father. For this, of course, was a picture of the cross of Jesus Christ, and you will never understand the death of Jesus Christ unless you realize that God the Father put him to death. The fact that the Jews delivered him is unimportant. The fact that the Gentiles did the actual nailing is unimportant. The important thing is that God Almighty killed Jesus Christ. This is the most important fact in all of history. There is nothing in the Bible to compare with this fact. In Isaiah 53, it says, It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. And on the day of Pentecost, Peter preaching there said to the Jews, Jesus was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. In fact, before God created this earth, God planned to kill Jesus Christ. He was the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And when God created this earth, he did so so that Jesus might be the Word made flesh. And when he chose Palestine, God chose Palestine so they could have a place to dig a hole a foot square and put the cross. And when he chose the Jews, he chose the Jews so that Mary could be born from whom would come Jesus Christ. God has never had any purpose apart from Jesus Christ. God has never had a thought apart from Jesus Christ. The whole universe exists for Jesus Christ. By him were all things made, and without him was not anything made that was made. By him all things consist, and he is the head of all things. And in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Now when we understand this, we see that when God the Father planned that Jesus Christ should die, he showed this even in the temple worship and the tabernacle sacrifice by having that kindling wood put there the first day and then God himself lighted the fire. Now, having understood the layout, we are now able to understand why God struck these two boys dead. What did they do? It was now time for incense to be offered, the sweet perfume, the odor of a sweet savor that was to be put before God. And they lit their, they got their censers and they went outside, maybe mother's kitchen stove or some other place. And as they came along, maybe thinking, isn't this wonderful? We're just being ordained. We're now come to the first day of our service. I have known boys who were in theological seminary to take a piece of paper and write down their name with reverend in front of it to see how it looked. Reverend Joe Dokes. And even sometime when they were feeling highly fanciful, they might have written Reverend Joe Dokes, D.D. Well, 
You see, these boys may have thought this is pretty wonderful. We're about to be priests. We're the sons of Aaron. We're about to go into this thing. But notice this fact, that they lit their censers with fire from outside, and they walked by the fire that God had lighted, and came on past the labor and into the holy place, and when they got right in front of the altar of incense inside the building, God struck them dead. And it says here that he struck them dead because they offered strange fire before the Lord. Strange fire. The word strange means from outside. They brought their fire from outside instead of lighting it at the altar. Now what were they really doing? They were bringing worship from the human spirit instead of from the Holy Spirit. Let me explain. There are three possible spirits that may possess you. And I'll illustrate by Peter. There is the human spirit, the Holy Spirit, and the spirit of the devil that may speak through any man's vocal cords. Take St. Peter. Peter was always running off at the mouth, the most American character in the Bible. If Peter had been living today, he would have been secretary of the Chamber of Commerce of Los Angeles. This is Peter, the great Rotarian, Kiwanian, service man, you know, beat it up, boys, let's have it. Slap him on the back, let's go, let's do it. This is Simon Peter. Also, the type of man who says, you say that to me when you say that small, I'll knock your block off. I can prove this. First time he ever came to Jesus. He said, Lord, how often do I have to forgive my brother? Now, you know, it never would occur to me to ask Christ such a question. The man that has to walk up to Jesus and say, how often do I have to forgive somebody, means that he's been in a lot of fights. That's all it does mean. So you have your first knowledge of Peter's character. He was always speaking out of turn. Even down to the end of his life, when they took him on the Mount Transfiguration, he went fast asleep. And when he woke up, he said, Lord, it's good to be here. Let's build three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And God Almighty spoke out of heaven and said, Shut up and listen to Jesus. King James Version, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. But never did anybody have a rebuke, the equal of that. A little while later, Peter comes to Jesus and says, Lord, you seem a little confused and in trouble. I'd just like you to know I've been out and bought me a sword. So if you ever get in trouble, I'll be right there. You can count on me. When the time came, he wasn't even able to hit a man's head. Only got his ear. And then in the upper room, in the upper room, Peter came and Jesus was washing their feet. And Peter looked at him and says, Thou shalt not wash my feet. Christ said, If I don't wash your feet, you have no part in me. Oh, well, my head and my hands also. Wrong again. He that is washed needs not to be washed again, but is clean every whit. You see, this is Peter talking, talk, 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 the human spirit, just running off at the mouth without reflection, without thinking, without any guidance at all, just man effervescing. Now one day, Peter was walking along and the Lord said, Whom say ye that I am? And Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Wait a minute, men, don't classify that remark with Peter's usual drivel. He did not think that out by himself. He's just had a divine revelation. King James Version, Blessed art thou, Simon, son of Jonah, flesh and blood hath not revealed it to thee, but my Father which is in heaven. You see, you've just had a divine revelation. So through the same vocal cords that gave all of this 
human chatter that we've been detailing, there came suddenly the voice of the Holy Spirit through the same vocal cords. Oh, says Peter, this is wonderful. I haven't had a remark like that. Somebody really knows that I've got something and God spoke for me. I, I wonder if I could think up another and get another compliment. Well, this is wonderful, this is wonderful. And seven verses later, Jesus said, I'm going to Jerusalem and die. Peter said, here's my chance. Be it far from thee, Lord. And Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan. Now, you see, here very definitely you have the human spirit, the Holy Spirit, and the devil all speaking through human vocal cords. So there are men who get up to preach and it's bombastic hot air. And there are men that get up to preach subtly and insidiously to deny that Jesus Christ is God. And you have men who get up humbly desiring to be filled with the Holy Spirit that God may speak through them. But you are always responsible, and believe me, if you ever swallow anything whole simply because somebody said it, you're in danger. And God will judge you for it. Don't you dare ever say, well, I believe this because Dr. Barnhouse said so. You show that you're a moron and you make one out of me, that I was not able better to tell you that you don't believe anything because I say it. That you believe something because when you first heard it, you say, is that true? Is that true? Is that true? I don't think it is. Maybe it is. Probably is. It is. Here it is. Then someone says, why do you believe that? You say, I found it right here in the book myself. And you put your finger on what the book says. And then your foundation is not a preacher's voice, but the word of God. You see, this is the important thing. Now let's come back to these two boys, Nadab and Abihu. They offered their worship from the human spirit instead of from the Holy Spirit. They were going to have a church service. So what did they do? They went out there and they lighted their fires from the mother's stove or some other place. And they walked right by God's fire. Perhaps they were singing, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And when they got here, God struck them dead. Because God says, I don't want you to think religiously from the froth of human imaginings. What do you think on Sunday morning when you are about to go to church? Well, you say, I'm, I'm always in caught in between because I'm trying to finish Dick Tracy and all the funny papers and uh, listen to a radio program and, and get the children ready and doing a lot of other things and I just, you know, rather I'm in a hurry when I go. Well, is the sermon good? Well, sometimes I, I, it takes me to 12 o'clock to sort of calm down because I was so busy getting ready to go to Sunday school. Well, you know, if you want the sermon to be better, I'll tell you how it shall be. You prepare for it. There's a, there's a verse in the Bible that's a very great comfort to preachers. In Hebrews 5, Paul wanted to preach about Melchizedek, and he said, Of whom there are many things hard to be said, because you are dull of hearing. So the fault of a bad sermon is the ears of the audience, God says. Because you can be sure of the fact that the majority of the ministers want to do something that will help their people. They want to do something that will. So if you go and you say, Lord, fill my heart with love for thee. May I light my fires at the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, if you light your fires at home and go to church, why, you may be going to church because you want someone to see your new hat. You may be going to church because... You think it's good business? 
that you want to borrow some money at the bank and you want the president of the bank to see you sitting in the third row and the fifth row or the 19th row or wherever you happen to be and you very definitely go to church for ulterior reasons, God can't bless you in the slightest. Your worship is like the worship of Nadab and Abihu. You have lighted your fire somewhere else. How should we go to church? We should say, Lord God, thou hast redeemed me. And I stand at the cross of Jesus Christ, and now I'm going with a group of people who have been bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ, and we're going together to sing with one voice the corporate worship of thee, the living God, and praise to Christ who redeemed us, to tell thee before the world that we acknowledge that we're sinners and that we need to be cleansed and maintained and refilled and go out in grace. And Lord, we want thee to do it. I tell you, the day you spend even five minutes like that on a Sunday morning, all of a sudden you're going to find the preacher is better and that everything is more wonderful. And even though you may know more than the preacher, because there's some people that think they do, and there may even be some that do. But you see, we've got to understand that whatever our position, that we go not merely to be fed, but to worship, to show that we're there, to give our testimony by our presence and by our gifts to lay aside as God hath prospered us. And this is the purpose of the church. And so we come. So be sure that when you worship God, you light your fires at the cross of Jesus Christ. Because if you go for any other reason, it's merely a church service. And God hates it. Now let's look at Uzzah. Uzzah was... The man who was chosen to bring back the ark. And it again is one of the outstanding chapters in the Bible, 2 Samuel chapter 6. Now that we've established all the principles, we can deal with these others very quickly. And here is Uzzah, chairman of the committee to bring back the ark. And the story of his death is there in this sixth chapter in verse 6 when they came to Nacon's threshing floor Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen shook it and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah and God smote him there for his error and there he died by the ark of God now you see this was a very important thing Uzzah was a good man just as we saw that Nadab and Abihu had been up on the mountain of God and seen God and had been there in the moment of highest devotion. So Uzzah was chosen because he was chairman of the board of deacons, because he was a leading man known for all of his spiritual work. What was back of his error? Now I've read a dozen, two dozen commentaries on this, and I have never found in print any place anyone that I think has shown the real meaning of this. And when I tell you what the real meaning is, I think you will see that you will never be able to believe any commentary on the subject again. You know, it's like the old Scotch lady. They said to her something about the commentaries. Did she read them? And she said, yes, the Bible throws a great deal of light on them. And there's no doubt of the fact that very frequently the Bible throws light on the commentaries. Well, here's a place that it needs to have light thrown on it. Now, in order to understand what happened here, you've got to go back a few chapters to see what had happened. For in the previous chapter, you have the story that the Philistines 
had caused war against the Israelites, and the Israelites were terribly in bondage. And somebody said, well, why don't we do something? My grandfather told me that his grandfather told him that his grandfather told him that all they had to do was pick up the ark of God and put it on their shoulders and go out and all the enemy would fall down dead. Someone said, well, that's easy. That's, that's really wonderful. We've got a secret weapon. Well, let's go do it. So they got up and they thought about the ark of God, but they didn't think anything about the God of the ark. Now, this is very important. Because ultimately you're going to see why this man was struck dead. Well, an awful lot of people talk about the church of the Lord, but not think too much about the Lord of the church. Because God is interested in your spiritual life and the fact that you think of him rather than church work. In fact, anybody that does church work for the sake of church work, I don't believe it's acceptable to God. You can be actively active in the activities and you can be doing all these things and you can go to church as often as the janitor. But God is not interested in it at all unless you're doing what you are doing for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now they took the ark of God and they went out in front of the enemy and the enemy came around and killed them and captured the ark. And there was the ark down in Philistine country. And immediately there began to be sicknesses. In all of the towns, wherever the ark went, they put the ark in this town, and people in the town had tumors. And there were great difficulties that came to them, the various diseases. And then they moved it to the next town, and the people there got the sicknesses, the tumors, and all these diseases. And finally the people said, well, we've got to get this ark out of here. We've got to get it out. And so they put it on a cart, Philistine cart. And they put an offering round about it of solid gold. They made the gold in the shape of their tumors and the shape of the various diseases that they had. Now the Philistines saw the ark of God on this ark, on this cart, and all this gold there. And one of the priests said, "Look, how do we know that this is uh, really caused by this ark? We don't want to give up all of this gold if, if really it's something else." One of the fellows says, "I got an idea. Let's." attached to this cart two cows that have just dropped their calves and we put the calves there and the cows here and we'll start them going and if the cows go to their calves well then we keep the gold here but if the cows leave their calves and go up the road then we'll know that this is the true God and that we've got to get this ark out of here this story is in the Bible a lot of people have never read it because a lot of people only read their Sunday school lessons and if the Sunday school people skip this why they don't get to it. So read your Bible, your Bible, your Bible, your Bible. So here's one of the most beautiful lines in the Bible, I think. I don't know how many of you people were raised in the country. Did you ever see a cow drop its calf? Now you know that if a cow ever has a calf, she wants to do one thing. And one thing only, she wants to lick that calf. And the cow will get at that calf and start to licking that calf and lick it and lick it. And you try to do anything else and that cow is miserable. She wants to lick that calf. So they got two cows that had just had their calves and they put the calves over there and, and put these cows in the shafts of this cart with the ark and all this gold on it. And suddenly the Bible says that the cows started up the hill lowing as they went. I love that verse. God Almighty touched the hearts of these cows and they did everything that was contrary to the maternal nature of a cow. God Almighty runs everything in this universe lowing as they went. 
and the poor cows knew that it was more important for them to obey their Creator than it was for them to lick their calves. And in the first chapter of Isaiah, God says, The ox knows its owner and the ass its master's crib, but my people have forsaken me. And many a time God Almighty says, You don't have the sense of a dumb animal. Well, that ark arrived up at Nathan's threshing floor, and there it was. And great prosperity came to the farm where this ark was. Days and weeks passed, and everybody said, Oh, look what's happened there, and the news got up to Jerusalem. And finally they said, Well, let's form a committee and bring it all the way back to Jerusalem. So Uzzah went down, and he heard the story. You should have seen it, Uzzah. These cows came up the road with this, and here's all this gold, and these cows did it. They had just dropped their calves, but they came up leaving their calves behind them. Well, says Uzzah, that's really a story, and I'll tell you what we're going to do, brother. We're going to show Jerusalem something in Christian work. We got a little scheme that'll really wow them. What we're going to do is going to take a cart, and we'll put in two yoke of, uh, yoke of two great white oxen. Isn't this something? Now, wait a minute, Isaiah. Are you asking God how to do this? Oh, don't bother me with theology. Isn't the big white ox a beautiful thing? So they got these two big oxen and hitched it to the cart, and they started up the road. And here comes Huzzah, onward Christian soldiers, marching as to war. Oh, boy, when they see this, the church is going to give me a specially bound Bible for my faithful servant. And all of a sudden they were on a rough road and the thing began to topple and Uzzah put up his hand and God struck him dead. Now the commentators say that he struck him dead for touching the ark. But that's not true. The point is that a little while later, a few months later, when they finally did get a committee to bring it up, the committee read in the Bible, how do you move an ark? And they said, you touch it. You don't put it on a Philistine cart with, with big oxen. You carry it on the shoulders of men. And so they picked it up and they touched it, and it went through and nobody was killed. What they were doing, their worship, was from the human spirit instead of the Holy Spirit. How do you run your church? Paul says, someone, look, boys, we got a great money-raising idea. I was down at the, my lodge, and my lodge is putting over a campaign. Now, we could adapt that in this church, and boy, we could really bring it in. And some of the women say, well, I'll tell you what we do, let's get a lot of tickets printed, we'll go out and sell it to everybody. And the woman has, they're selling a ticket to something in the church, you know, and they come up to their butcher, for instance, Mr. So-and-so, we're having a dinner over at our church, it's a dollar and a half a piece, wouldn't you like to buy a couple of tickets? And he knows that business is rather touchy, and he doesn't want you to go to the other butcher down the street, so he sort of grins a sour grin and pulls out three dollars and hands it to you, it's a little graph for the church, and you go away, and he says, these blankety-blank church grafters, and he's right. Whoever told you you had to pass the hat for the poor Lord Jesus? Whoever said that a church was to raise its money the same way a lodge raises the money? How do you raise money in a church? You get down on your knees and pray and put your hands in your pocket and give it. And that's the only way to do it. And God struck us a debt because he wanted to have a show. Now, I, I have a file in my office in which I've kept clippings of things that people have done to raise money for churches. I know what I'm talking about. Several years ago, when the Model A Ford was first put out, everybody was wondering what the Model A was going to look like. And I have a clipping that shows that a certain preacher moved the pulpit out and got the local Ford dealer to bring a Model A in all covered over and announced everywhere that 
even though it wasn't going to be seen until Tuesday in the rest of the time that it would be exhibited in the pulpit on Sunday night. And at the given moment, they pulled the sheet off, and there was the preacher sitting at the wheel preaching on streamlined religion, and everybody looking at the car instead of it listening to what he had to say. I show you a clipping in my files that out in Texas at the time of a county fair, they took the pulpit out and put linoleum down all over the front of the church and brought in the champion cow and the champion goat and had a milking contest to see who could get a quart first. You have no idea what's done in some churches to try to pass the hat for the poor Lord Jesus to raise money, but what's God's method? Let every one of you lay aside in store as God hath prospered What's the method of having a revival? Pump it up or pray it down? You can't pump up a revival, and lots of times there's a meeting and you get the people out, the evangelist comes and beats on them, and they go away more hard than they were when they came in. Simply because of the fact that it was done in man's way, Ozzo was going to put on a big show, milk white oxen, come and see it. All the things people do in churches. Come out on Saturday night. Let's get the young people. Instead of having them rock and roll, have them come over here and sing, He saves me so neatly, so sweetly and completely. And they're thinking about anything in the world but about the Lord. And they're going to advertise to you, Come and see so-and-so. He was a convict 30 days ago and is now a preacher. Come and see so-and-so. He used to play the saxophone in so-and-so's jazz band up in the dirty dance parlor. He's going to come and tell all the gondolite children that aren't supposed to know anything about dances all about it. Now, this is not of God, dear friends. Measure it by Acts chapter 29, and I think you'll never do it again. Now, don't write that down. There are only 28 chapters in the book of Acts. But can you imagine it as if it were written in the 29th chapter of Acts? And it came to pass in those days that in view of the juvenile delinquency in Rome, Paul said, Go to now, let us get Spartacus the gladiator, and bring all the young people out on Saturday night and have Spartacus the gladiator tell them about his big fight with lions and bulls in the arena. And so mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. I tell you, dear friends, this is not of the Holy Spirit. The method to imitate Hollywood in the Church of Jesus Christ is a satanic thing. And let's not forget it. God's method is to teach us by the Holy Spirit to look up to him and the Lord to come in and take over and that our spiritual work should be done in a spiritual way. And lastly, God struck Ananias and Sapphira dead. Where were they in prayer meeting? What were they doing? Giving their missionary offering. Now, why did God strike them dead? God struck them dead because their surrender was from the human spirit instead of the Holy Spirit. In the previous chapter of the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit came upon the early church and people said, Oh, I want to give everything to God. And some of them did. Don't let anybody tell you that that was communism. Oh, there are people that say, Why, everybody gave everything they had and they had all things in common. And this was communism. But if you read it closely, you discover there in the book of Acts that... At the moment that Peter was about to see that Ananias fell dead, he said, Ananias, why hath Satan put it in thine heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? While the land remained, was it not thine own? There God declares the right of private property. And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? There is no communism in the Bible. Let me tell you this, if you've got some money, it belongs to you, and nobody can come and tell you what you're to do with it. No committee of the deacons can come up to you and say, well, now we know generally how much money you have, and we think that you ought to give $2,000 towards this. 
Now, you should never do such a thing. It's not up to you to tell me what I should do with my money, and it's not up to me to tell you what you should do with your money. Your money belongs to you, and you're answerable to God. Just don't lie about it. Just don't say, well, I'm giving everything I have, when you know very well that you've got an oil well behind that your aunt left you and that nobody knows about. You see, this is the thing God won't tolerate. God wants that your surrender should be from the Holy Spirit. Now, what did these people really do? They do what you do all the time. I surrender all, I surrender all. Do you really surrender all? Sunday night over at Shades Mountain, I told a story, I'm going to repeat it, about the, the uh, one song I won't let them sing in my church. Years I spent in vanity and pride, caring not my Lord was crucified, knowing not it was for me he died on Calvary. The third verse I will always omit and tell them why. Because the third verse is, Now I've given to Jesus everything. Do you want to sing that? If I said, let's sing that, Now I've given to Jesus everything, half of the people in this room would sing it and lie. You know very well you haven't given everything to Christ. There are areas in your lives that are not given to Christ. There are some of you men that have got a private room with dirty pictures on the walls, and you go in there and look around in your imagination. There are some of you women, you know very well you've got places of lying about somebody else and gossip and slander and there are many of you people know that you're chiseling and cheating on God diddling with your income tax and doing all sorts of things and blank I put it in because I can't reach all of you and God Almighty will tell you where you're doing something that is not well pleasing unto him I'm not going to let my people sing now I've given to Jesus everything now I gladly own him as my king now my raptured soul can only sing of Calvary and the congregation sings that and goes out humming sugar in the morning sugar in the evening sugar in the evening now my raptured soul can only sing of Calvary God struck Ananias and Sapphira dead for doing just that now, let's sum all this up. What have we seen? God Almighty struck dead three people in the middle of a religious act. They're the only people in the Bible whom God struck dead. He struck these people dead because worship was from the human spirit instead of the Holy Spirit. Service was from the human spirit instead of the Holy Spirit. Surrender was from the human spirit instead of the Holy Spirit. And God Almighty says, I hate religion that is merely pumped up froth and done in man's way. I want you to do things my way. Somebody asked me one day, you believe in freedom of religion? I said, yes, but I've got to define it. What is freedom of religion? I believe that any man in the world has a right to believe anything he pleases. But I define freedom of religion this way. Freedom of religion is the right of any man to go to hell in his own way or to go to heaven in God's way. That is what I believe is freedom of religion. And so Jesus says, you can believe anything you please, but if you do not believe what I say. He said, I do not teach you that I am one of many equally good ways. I am a phase of truth and I am an aspect of life. He said, I teach you that I am the way, the truth, the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. He that climbeth up by any other way is a thief and a robber. So we sum this all up perhaps with one verse in the Bible, Zechariah 4, 6, Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, saith the Lord. So see to it that your worship is in the Holy Spirit. 
So O God, thou hast said that thou seekest true, thou seekest true worshipers. Then Lord, find in my heart true worship. Then he'll bring you on. Spend time with the word of God to find out what his will is. Don't go building carts and attaching white steers to them because white oxen because you think it looks pretty and it'll be a wonderful effect. Get the spiritual effect that God wants deep in the word of God. And when you come to give, you don't have to let anybody in the world know what you do. And you say, Lord, here's what I give. I'm sorry it can't be more, but what I'm giving I give as unto thee like the widow who gave her two mites. And the Lord sees and the Lord knows and you're not responsible to anyone in the world, you're responsible to the Lord. And when a church is run this way, that church is going to grow in power and depth and breadth and height and its influence will spread out through its young people and through its members and it will be a tremendous evangelizing effect on the whole community. And you will be in joy because you will be in the will of God. Let us bow in prayer. O Lord our God, we pray thee that the Holy Spirit will take these truths to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Now I want you to start into the book of Genesis by way of the Gospel of Luke. In Luke 24, I take you to three words. The Lord Jesus on the road to Emmaus, when he said in verse 26, Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer and to enter this glory? And, and here are my three words, beginning at Moses. So let's turn over to Genesis 3, and we'll begin at Moses to see something. I like to believe, though I don't dogmatize, of course, about it, I like to believe that that day as they were walking along the road to Emmaus, that Jesus said, you know the book of Genesis, don't you? Don't you know the story of what happened there in the third chapter? Now remember that the key to what he said in the book of Luke is that the sufferings of Christ were written in the Old Testament. The sufferings. So we're going to look for this. Now, if you begin to read the Bible, Genesis chapter 1 and then chapter 2, sometimes try it and do not read the words, only read the punctuation. Semicolon, colon, comma, period, period, comma, or full stop as they say in England. Comma, semicolon, colon, period, and so on. You will not come to a question mark until you reach chapter 3. The first question mark in human history follows a question put by the devil, has God spoken? And when anybody asks you if the Bible is God's word today, he is echoing the devil's first question that was ever spoken in this universe. There never was a question until sin entered. So you turn to the third chapter of Genesis, and the opening words say, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. The Hebrew is the nachash. It means the shining one. It's not a snake. All the pictures of the Middle Ages that show a snake up a tree hissing at a woman with long hair, this is not what the Bible teaches. Let's take what the Bible teaches. Later he became the serpent, but at this time he was upright and had the gift of human speech. And he was the Nahash, 
And as we know from other parts of the Bible, he permitted the devil to take control, at least of his vocal cords. But it was Satan who was speaking through him, as the other end of the Bible says, that old serpent which is the devil and Satan. Now the serpent, the Nachash, the shining one, was more subtle than any beast of the field which Jehovah God had made. And he said to the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden, question mark, interrogation point. Now the beginning of sin in this world is questioning the word of God. Time and again I've had people say to me, But you know my child went off to university and had perfect faith, and at university they lost their faith. And I've talked with some of those children, and I know what happens. Here's what happened. You'd have to look at me for this. They went away with faith that on this level and moral standards on this level. And after they've been in college a while, their moral standards dropped to here. And they can't live with a spiritual standard up here. And not being willing to surrender to God and have their morals forgiven and cleansed and put back up to where God put them, why they bring their Bible down just below their moral standards so that they can live with themselves. I know this to be, I'll give you one instance. I was preaching in Johnson City, Tennessee. There's a state normal school there. Matron in the dormitory asked me if I'd come out and speak. She said, you'll have about 125 girls. Just come out at 10.30 at night after your meeting. She said, they'll all have their hair down and their lipstick off, and you should have seen 125 girls with curl papers and all the rest of it. But there they were, and they came down, and their, uh, all their lack of beauty can beauty, and sat there, and I talked to them, and then there was a question and answer period. And when they'd gone off, there was one girl stayed behind. Her face was like a thundercloud. And she said... Well, I used to believe all this, but I don't believe it anymore. I said, what class are you in? She said, I'm a freshman. I said, what kind of a home did you come from? I came from a Christian home and so on and so. Do you have a Bible? Yes. Have you ever read it? I used to. I used to read it every day. I said, when did you stop reading it? Can you remember? She said, yes, about Thanksgiving. I said, what were you doing about November the 10th to 15th? And she began to cry. And this was the heart. Along about November 10th to 15th, she'd fallen into deep sin. And she started to read her Bible, and within five days it became intolerable. And she stopped reading her Bible and put it away. Now I said, will you get down before God and confess your sin and ask him to restore you? And she did. She acknowledged her guilt. She acknowledged her sin. And the Lord gave her back her peace, and the matron said to me the next night as she brought her to the church, doesn't she have a different face? And she wasn't talking about cosmetics. God had lightened her burden, and what had happened was that the modern approach to the scripture, of course, will allow you to live in sin and live with your conscience. The modern approach. But when you go back to the fundamental teaching of the word of God, You've got to live in holiness if you're going to live with this book. And whenever you find anybody that doubts the Bible, the answer is in John 3, 19. This is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Now, Jesus Christ said that. 
and from half a century of ministering to high school and college kids, that by the hundreds and probably several thousands that I've ministered to, many thousands in the course of these years, I know this is true. Moody had it written in the front of his Bible. This book will keep you from sin, and sin will keep you from this book. And don't forget that that's the cause of liberalism, that's the cause of modernism, that's the cause of unbelief, sin. Now, sin began by the denial of the word of God. Hath God said, yes, he has, Satan, and we stand or fall by the word of God. God has spoken. And the woman said unto the serpent, Well, uh, we may not eat the fruit of the trees of the garden. What was she listening for? What she should have done was to run to her husband immediately. That's God's will for a wife. And don't forget it, and that's what's wrong with a lot of America, too, is that women don't want to be what God says they should be. For the Bible tells us, if we turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 2, that Adam was not deceived. And if you're going to understand the Bible, you've got to realize that the devil did not tempt Adam. And the Bible says that Adam was not deceived. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 14, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. In other words, if, 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 if the temptation of the woman took place at 10 o'clock in the morning, oh, won't Adam be delighted with me? You shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Adam, Adam, I got a raise for you and a college education for the children, and I did it all by my little selfie. And she was so proud. And she did not know that she had been deceived. Adam knew. Adam was not deceived for one second. That's, by the way, why the Bible never blames the woman for original sin. It's only in the funny papers that you read about all the trouble that our mother Eve got us into. The Bible never blames the woman. Because after all, if, if, if Adam had sinned first and then Eve... God would have said to Eve, what have you done? Just what you told me to, followed my husband. And the fall of man would not have been complete. A few years ago, a woman in Montclair, New Jersey, heard the front doorbell ring about 9.30 in the morning. She went to the door, and there were a couple of swarthy-looking men who were, had with them a, a rug tied up with a rope. And they said to her, Lady... We're in a great predicament. You see, this is this morning's New York Times, and you see here that steamer so-and-so sailed this more last night, sailed last night for Boston. Well, we were out on a party, and we were drunk, and we, uh, we've missed our ship, and we've got to have enough money to get to Boston, and we need $40. Now, here is a magnificent Oriental rug that we brought with us, and we'll sell it to you for $40. It's worth 500 and so on. Well, she bought. And she came home, and when her husband saw it, he knew right away that she'd been gypped, and it wasn't long before they verified that it was a $19 Sears Roebuck made in Scranton, Pennsylvania. But from the moment she bought it, deceived, she thought she had a bargain. And Eve thought she had a bargain there because the devil said to her, You shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. This is a great buy, and the woman took and ate. 
But the Bible tells us that when the man sinned, that it was, God Almighty, here's this fruit and this tree, and you've told me that I can have everything north of here, and that I can have everything south of here, and that I can have everything east of here, and that I can have everything west of here, but as long as there is this symbol of my dependence, it crowds and frustrates me, and I am the captain of my soul, and I am master of my faith. And that's the way man sinned. This, by the way, this difference in psychology is the reason why God tells us that women are not to be preachers. I suffer not a woman to teach. Why? Now, there's no question of inferiority or superiority involved. Everyone with his senses knows that a woman is superior to a man. At being a woman! And anyone with any sense knows that a man is superior to a woman at being a man. The horror comes when you have a mannish woman or a womanish man. <laughs> now, this is what the scripture teaches, you see. The Bible created the woman in this role, and Satan got her on the weakest place in a woman's whole makeup, which is also the strongest point in her makeup, her love for her husband and her children. You shall be as gods. I'm going to do this. Have you ever noticed that the difference between false religions when they're established by a woman and when they're established by a man? You get a Mrs. Mary Baker Grover Patterson Eddy or Annie Besant or Ellen G. White, or any of the other false women teachers, Mrs. Fillmore and Unity. And they're always religions. Oh, yes, God is love. See? <laughs> and they do not have God is hate of sin. And you have false religion unless you have in it that God's justice and God's holiness, God's hatred of sin. And they deny the reality of sin and so on. But when you get a man's false religion, it's a consensus of scholarship that the virgin birth is a biological impossibility. And our scholarship and standing will not allow us to believe in the inspiration of the scriptures. Rip this out for this reason, and we do not accept that. And man is bold in his denial. Now... Remember that we're looking at this from the point of view of Christ saying that he had to suffer. What I want to point out to you especially in this story that now follows is that in the course of it, there are three changes of garments. We discover that originally Adam and Eve were clothed with one set of garments, later on with leaves, and thirdly still another set. Now, most evidently, when they had sinned, and when they ran away and discovered that they were naked and made for them coats of fig leaves, it's not talking about skin nakedness. This is readily ascertainable by the fact that when they were completely covered with leaves so that their body was not visible, and when, Adam's, when God said, Adam, where art thou? He said, I was afraid and I hid myself because I was naked. Wait a minute, Adam. You've just gone to no small trouble to cover that. Oh, yes, that, says Adam. But you see, before, 
we were clothed in light. Now, it doesn't say so in so many words, but if you read all of the Bible, and this is the way to understand the Bible, read all of the Bible and you soon discover that light is set forth in the Bible as the garment of holiness. In the Psalms it says of God, who clothes himself with light as with a garment. You come to the Mount of Transfiguration and you see Jesus with Moses and Elijah and they shone as light. And you go on to the book of Revelation and you discover the garment of light. And man and woman sinned and the light went out. And immediately they scrounged around and they covered themselves with fig leaves. Now, you see, I'm quite convinced that a person may be more modestly covered in fig leaves than many people are covered in silk today, in our day. You go down there, you see, modesty is a quality of a woman's heart and not of the kind of clothing she has on. There are some women that if they were forced to escape in the middle of the night from a burning building with scant clothing would be modest. And there are other women who would be immodest if they were dressed in four dresses and three mink coats. You see, the modesty is not a question of what your garments are made of. And don't forget that the Bible teaches, and young folks, I want you to consider this, the Bible teaches that God hates glamour. The Bible teaches that God hates, I say hates, glamour. In fact, the Bible tells us in 1 Peter chapter 3 that what God wants in a woman is a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. Now, don't misunderstand. You, bet the, you get the best cosmetics you can and wear the nicest clothes you're capable of paying and see to it that your hair is not in wisps and that your slip does not show and you dress as well as you can on your budget to the honor and glory of the Lord. It is not a sin to make the most of all that God has given you and this goes for men too. You should wash behind your ears and neck and see that your fingernails are clean and if any man tells me he's a Christian, I want to see that he stands for God in these things. But don't forget that while all of this is true, God is interested in the heart. And for a woman, he says that the ornament of God is a meek and quiet spirit. Well, here are Adam and Eve that have run away from God and are now covered with fig leaves. And in verse 9, God seeks man. Let me point this out. I was afraid, says Adam. Who were you afraid of? God! Well, anybody that's afraid of God is afraid of God because he's running away from God. For God is love. How should you be afraid of love? Oh, what there is revealed in this word. Adam, where art thou? There's the second question mark in the Bible. God seeking man. And don't forget that God seeks man. Man runs away from God and he runs and runs and runs and says, I got away from you. God says, listen, I knew a shortcut and I came across to help you. And man pulls away from God and runs and says, I got away from him. And God says, I know all the shortcuts and I'm here to help you. You have never sought God. I heard, years ago, I heard the story of a Chinese boy who came to San Francisco from Canton. He couldn't speak very good English yet, but he knew Christ. And when someone said to him, where did you find Christ? He said, me no find Christ, Christ find me. Oh. 
That's perfect. That's wonderful, because this is absolutely true. You didn't find Christ in Romans 3. It says, there is none that seeketh after God. Well, someone says, now that's not true. I knew a woman who sought Christ in Christian science, and she sought God in unity, and she sought God in Baha'ism, and she sought God. She didn't anything of the kind. She was digging a foxhole, and when the Holy Spirit bombed her out of that one, she dove into the next one. <laughs> the Bible says that no man ever seeketh after God. Men run away from God, and God seeks men. Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice, and I was afraid. Now I want you to note that which follows. And God said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree where I commanded thee that thou shouldst not eat? And the man said, Dirty coward that he was, The woman! Don't you laugh, women. You're going to get yours in the next verse. <laughs> Notice what he said. The man said, The woman thou gavest me. God, if you had a foresight enough to give me a different kind of wife, this wouldn't happen. No, 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 Adam. It was your fault. Never forget God blames the man and blames nobody but the man. Because man's rebellion was willful, personal. It was a de novo act. It did not come from Satan. Don't forget that the fall of man is not involved in the fall of the devil. Sin entered this universe through Satan, but it entered humanity by Adam and not by the devil. Adam was not deceived. Adam was not deceived. It was an act of willful rebellion. The woman thou gavest me. Now, God didn't discuss it with him. But he turned to the woman and he said, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman, big coward, said, The serpent! In the army, this is known as passing the buck. <laughs> Getting out from under. But here you see, this is exactly what happened. Now here's the point of the story, because you watch closely now and read all that's here, and you'll begin to see the drama and the theology of what was transpiring. There was the accused man, and God did not discuss it with him, the accused woman, and God did not discuss it with her. But he now turns to this knockhash, this shining one, and says to this serpent, the Nachash, Because thou hast done this thing, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly thou shalt go. And Adam and Eve, trembling here, suddenly saw that thing become a snake. Someone said, Dr. Barnhouse, don't you know zoology? Don't you know that the reptile has the little elements of wings? Yes, maybe he had him before this time. I'm not going to accept your guess to deny the word of God. And everything you have is a guess. But here's the revelation of how it happened. And God says that the reptile became a reptile under the curse of God. And suddenly they saw this loathsome, crawling thing. And God said, Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I, God, will put enmity, hatred, between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. He shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And here's the first announcement of the death of Jesus Christ. 
that he's going to be put upon a cross and that Satan will bruise his heel, but that in doing so, Jesus Christ will crush the head of Satan. And here is the announcement of redemption. And it's the seed of the woman. There's the announcement of the virgin birth. Sometimes people say, if the virgin birth is so important, why isn't it put more often? Well, you find many doctrines in the scripture that are stated once. The fall of man. And thereafter, it's taken for granted. And the fact that Jesus Christ was born without a human father, it is flatly stated in the word of God. And if you do not believe it, with the same arguments that you deny it, we can deny the resurrection and all the rest of it, the veracity of every part of the Godhead. And more important, let's face this fact, that if Jesus Christ were not born of a virgin, he had a lost Adamic soul for a father and had an inherited fallen nature. But the Bible everywhere teaches that Jesus Christ did not have a fallen human nature. He did not have the risings of lust. He could not have sinned. And let's not forget that we have many temptations that Jesus Christ never had. Who says someone know there's a verse in Hebrews that says he was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin? Which means one thing, that we're tempted in three points, and he was tempted in two. He was tempted in all, we from the world, the flesh, and the devil, and he from the world and the devil, but not sin, not from the flesh. Years ago, I preached this in my church, and when I came home, my seven-year-old boy said, Daddy, I know a temptation I've had that Jesus has never had. In my sermon, I'd used the illustration that I said, For instance, have you ever been tempted to do something and you said, I'll never do it again, and then you did it? And then you said, No, I'll never do it again, and then you did it. And then you said, Now, Lord, this time I'll never do it again, and then you did it. And the devil said, Oh, roll over and take it easy. Despair. Now, I said, Jesus never was tempted to despair after repeated defeats because he never had the repeated defeats in the first place. So my boy says, I know a temptation I had that Jesus never had. I said, what? He said, he was never tempted to tell a second lie to cover up a first one. <laughs> because he never told the first lie. But here, you see, now is the definite announcement of the death of Christ, the crushing of his heel, the bruising of his heel. And you find this in the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. It pleased Jehovah to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. And he allowed it to be done by having him put upon the cross where Satan poured out his enmity, but where man received his redemption and Satan was spoiled of his prey and all that he possessed was taken away from him in title and that never again can he stand before God. Now, at this point, there are four or five verses that we could omit. In fact, I'll go over them very rapidly. God announced the judgment that was to come upon the woman, then the judgment that was to come upon the man, ending with the famous verse, In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat thy bread, till thou return to the ground, for out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and to dust thou shalt return. Then suddenly it says, and Adam knew his wife and called his wife's name Eve. Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. This seems disconnected. And the next verse says, unto the Lord God and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. There's a change of subject, isn't there? No, there isn't if you look at it closely. Now sometimes you can have a change of subject which really, where well, one part has nothing to do with the other. Years ago when push-button radio was first invented, 
My children delighted to get one button and push one button and then another if you had different broadcasts. A baseball game and a political speech, for instance. And so, if you will vote for me, I promise, out on third with the pop fly. Well, you see, it's very interesting. One night, believe it or not, this happened, that the night that Philip and Elizabeth were married, when she was yet princess, they had the rebroadcast of the wedding from Westminster Abbey at the same time there was a prize fight, and the Archbishop of Canterbury said, do you take this woman to be your wife? And they pressed the other button, and the umpire said, shake hands and come out fighting. Now, <laughs> now you can readily see you can readily see that if you've got two different radio stations and you're getting broadcasts from different sources, you can expect strange and incongruous things. But here you have the Lord God Almighty who has inspired these documents and it is in the order of what we find here that we now find one of the most remarkable teachings in the Bible. Note the order. First of all, man and woman convicted of sin. They'd lost the garments of light. They covered themselves with fig leaves. And then Lord God announces the judgment of the serpent and says, I, God, will put hatred between humanity and Satan. And that's the reason why Satan can never organize humanity, because humanity won't let him. The devil, if the devil owned any one town in the United States completely, it would immediately be the loveliest town in America. That shocks some people because the devil has made people think that he's trying to make good men bad and bad men worse. But that's not true. The devil is trying to organize humanity into good, kind, and loving people. With a chicken in every pot and two cars in every garage and even the chauffeurs will have chauffeurs. And all that communism or anything else could do for people and to have everybody belong to church where Jesus is not preached. And there would be no thievery, no drunkenness, nothing at all. But you see, there is hatred between man and Satan. And man says to Satan, we won't have you rule over us any more than we'll have God rule over us. And Adam says, I want what I want. I'm going to run it. And the other man runs what he wants. No, the purpose of Satan is not to make good men bad and bad men worse. The purpose of Satan is to make men good without Jesus Christ. And the moment you understand that this is what the Bible teaches, the whole of human history takes on a different look. When you understand that Satan wants people to say, God is love, now be good and kind and cultured and religious, but not too. Don't be fanatical, of course. You mustn't believe these horrible things about the blood and about inspiration. But just take it nicely. See, this is Satan's religion. Don't forget it. And so after this, suddenly, Adam turned and it says he called his wife's name Eve. Now, that's not a name. That's a title. What did God call the first woman? We're so used to saying it Adam and Eve that we forget that there's another name for the woman in the book of Genesis. And that God gave the woman another name. And probably if you had even up for $64,000 question and had to answer in 10 seconds, probably 90% of you people here can't tell the name by which God called the first woman, and there it is, in Genesis chapter 5. For it says, male and female created he them and blessed them and called their name 
Adam. Now, this is infinitely superior to the Revised Standard Version at this point, because the RSV not only translated, but interpreted, as they so often have done. Why, you must be extremely careful of it. Check at least with two other versions. Very, very, very good translation. One of the best ever made in history, but in many places extremely faulty because they not only translated, but interpreted in a wrong direction. But here it says that male and female created he them and blessed them and called their name Adam. Their name Adam. It is quite biblical for a woman to come in as Miss X and go out as Mrs. Y. And never forget that a woman is always what her husband is. I remember one time at a tea in Albany, New York, a few years ago, there was a woman there who was making scathing remarks about the Bible and what it had to say and how it put women in an inferior place. And I said, well, to her, of course, the Bible teaches that a woman is what her husband is. And this is the way God wants it to be. And after a while we were talking and the whole group of people and somebody mentioned so-and-so and I said, who's she? And this woman says, well, she's the wife of Senator so-and-so. I said, but who is she? She said, she's the wife of Senator so-and-so. I said, I heard that, but who is she? She said, she's the wife. I said, exactly. That's what I was arguing with you half an hour ago, that a woman is what her husband is. Now, if there are two sisters in a wealthy family on Long Island, and one of them marries a senator and the other marries the chauffeur, who are the sisters henceforth? They're exactly what their husbands is. That's why I always tell all girls, measure your cloth nine times, you can only cut it once. Is the old Russian proverb about getting married. Be very, very careful. And I can answer one of the questions that I didn't answer yet. Is there anything in the Bible that says that a Christian should not marry a non-Christian? Flatly, God states that there may never be a valid marriage between a two-natured Christian and a one-natured non-Christian. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What heart part has he that believeth with an infidel? Therefore come out from among them and be ye separate. God blessed them and called their name Adam. Well, why did Adam call his wife's name Eve? I read a story once of a young fellow in an office who went up to a fellow who'd been married a couple of years and said, look, I've just been getting married. What do you call your mother-in-law? Well, he said, for the first year I called her Say, and after that I called her Grandma. Now, this is interesting and effective Bible teaching because why did Adam call his wife's name Eve? Because Eve is not a name. Eve is a title. Eve means mother, it says here. And he called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living and she was the mother of nobody. And if you believe in verbal inspiration and go on, you'll discover that there was not even conception at the time. The sin took place shortly after creation. And he called her name Mother by faith. They had stood there and had seen the Nakash, shining one, become a serpent. And they must have thought, if the mere agent of our fall has had such judgment, what will not happen to us? And suddenly they heard God say, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. Oh, says Adam, we're not going to be destroyed. We're going to live and we're going to have children. 
her seed. Eve, I call you mother. You are the mother of all living. And she had not conceived and she had no children, but by faith Adam had laid hold upon this promise. Now what's the next line? It says, unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins. Now how do you get the skin of an animal? You kill the animal and shed its blood. What kind? This is the first fur coat in history, by the way. And how? what animal was it from? I don't know. Now don't say that I dogmatized on this. I think from all the rest of the Bible that it must have been lamb skin. Because the lamb had to shed its blood. And when we consider that in the olden times the lamb was food for the people and meat for them and sacrifice for their sins and that the skin was the priest's fee for slaying the animal and that the skin was used upon which to write the Bible. And it has come down to us on the skin of the lamb and how it was all thus together in one great teaching. And Adam called his wife's name mother and God immediately clothed them with skins of animals, shed blood and provided a new garment for them. Why? Well, you see, this goes back to the fact that early in the chapter, man was clothed with light. And later in the chapter, he's clothed with fig leaves. And now he's clothed with skins. Three garments in the same chapter. Now, the light is the symbol of innocence. And that was gone forever. Fig leaves is a symbol of human good works, character, do-it-yourself religion. And fig leaves is a symbol of substitutionary atonement. The animal dies in order to furnish its skin to cover the man. And, oh, when we understand this, how wonderful it comes. <laughs> if my voice appears harsh, it isn't because I'm harsh, but because I have a little, uh, tonight, a little cold somehow. Sometimes I'm told that when I preach, people get the impression that I'm harsh. It's merely, a, a, a throat specialist once told me that my vocal cords had on them like a ditch digger's hands, because he said, you preach so much, you've got calluses on your vocal cords. And some, sometimes people think I'm preaching without love. Oh, I tell you, if, if I could only, and I become aware of the fact that my tone is harsh, but my heart is not. And I'm trying so hard to set forth that which is here in order that you may understand these marvelous truths. And here it was that God Almighty clothed Adam with the skin of the lamb or the animal, and the animal had to die in order to cover Adam, just as Jesus Christ had to die to cover us. Now I'm ready very quickly for the benediction, because here is the conclusion. You are going to stand before God, and how are you going to be dressed? None of us are dressed in light. We lost light, we're sinners. We have no more, none of us are sinless, and none of us can stand before God clothed in the perfection. Now you stand before God clothed in fig leaves, or you stand clothed in the furnished righteousness of Jesus Christ provided as a skin covering by the slaying of Jesus Christ. Well, you say, I've been baptized. Fig leaves! Well, I joined the church. Fig leaves. Well, I, I try to be good and pay my debts. Fig leaves. Well, I, I tithe. Fig leaves. Well, I... I donate blood and, and send care packages, fig leaves. Well, what then? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's the garments that God provides. 
As you go out of the church in two or three minutes from now, you're going out before God and you're either dressed in the fig leaves of your own human attempts to provide something for yourself or you're going out as one who's stripped naked by God and standing before him in all of the horror of your sinfulness are clothed with Christ. That's why the hymnologist wrote, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. And the last verse, when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, then I shall in him be found dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Dressed in his righteousness alone. If you ever listen to my broadcast, you know that Anton Marco, when I finished preaching his closing hymn every Sunday, our theme song, one of the greatest hymns ever written. The words by the great German Count Zinzendorf, the music by Beethoven, the translation by Wesley, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are my glorious dress. Mid flaming worlds in these arrayed with joy shall I lift up my head. Bold shall I stand in that great day, for who ought to my charge shall lay? Fully absolved from these I am, from sin and death and every shame. Lord, I believe, were sinners more than sands upon the ocean floor, thou hast for all a ransom paid, for all a full atonement made. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty, are my glorious dress. How are you dressed tonight? You've lost your light. And if you dare to approach God dressed in any fig leaves of your own cutting, you will hear him say, Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. I never knew you. But if you go and say, Dressed in Christ's righteousness alone, he cannot turn away the presence of his Son, and in Christ you are received. Now our God and Father go with us as we go. If there should be any here who have not been born again, we pray thee to accompany them with restlessness, that they may know no peace until they rest in Christ. But upon all thy redeemed own, may thy grace, thy mercy, and thy peace abide and a new sense of the garment that thou dost give us because Jesus Christ died, that we may stand before thee dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless, to stand before thy throne. And unto thee be the glory and the majesty, the dominion and the power, now till Jesus come again and forever. Amen.